Hello, this month we're bringing you a new podcast every week, and all of them are about LGBT plus at work. Why are we focusing so hard on this? Well, because right now, more than 60% of LGBT plus graduates who are out at university go back into the closet when they start work. That's right, 63%, and that's according to Stonewall. So, what's going on? LGBT plus employees, of course, have legal protection against discrimination. But we all know that making workplaces inclusive is about more than rules and regulations. And for all the positive messaging on company websites and good work being done by many organisations, tens of thousands of LGBT plus people still feel it's just too risky to bring their whole selves to work. So what are their anxieties? And how do you create a workplace where everyone can flourish? Getting to the heart of this really matters. Failing to be inclusive is very expensive. Great candidates and valuable employees avoid organisations where they're just not confident they'll fit in. And they can waste as much as 30% of their mental energy hiding who they are if they work for an organisation that doesn't feel truly inclusive. In this first podcast, you'll hear gay, lesbian and trans people talk about their work and their colleagues, where they do, or don't, disclose their sexual identity. How there's no such thing as the LGBT plus community, and why all sides get so hung up on language. Stephen Frost is a globally recognised diversity expert and a gay man, so he's ideally placed to assess the situation for LGBT plus people at work. You'll also hear from trainee vet Hattie Smart, EY partner Liz Bingham, Amy Stanning, who's Shared Services Director at Barclays, Paul Deemer, who's Head of Diversity and Inclusion at NHS Employers, and Scott DeRayraj, Head of Patient Experience, Mental Health and Learning Disability for the NHS. So where are we now? I think in many ways we're in a great place. In many ways we're world-leading. In many ways we've changed this to be a positive good, a commercial good, rather than a cost or something we don't want to be associated with. But of course we still know that young people are bullied for being lesbian or gay. We still know that, you know, too many people think of their identity as being a liability in their career rather than as a resource and part of them being authentic whole person at work. This is a reality for many young people entering the workforce. Here's Hattie. There has been times where I've not mentioned it at all because I felt that it wouldn't have been taken in the right way necessarily. Times on placements more than anything else. Some settings are quite traditional, quite religious old-style farming communities. I've known for a fact that people have been verbally abused on placements because of their sexuality. So it was something that I maybe hid. I think the issue becomes when, let's take Jane or Bob that have been out at university, have bought the website and the marketing and the Kool-Aid, and then have gone in and met the line manager. And then the penny drops. Oh. And it's the classic, you know, Drucker quote that the culture eats strategy for breakfast. What they say on paper and what actually happens can be two completely different things. And I think you kind of need to be there for a while to understand that at times, which is difficult when you're at interview process. 
not disclosing can put a serious dent in productivity and in career progression. I had a flourishing career until, rather shockingly, when I turned 30, I fell in love with a woman for the first time. You know, this was a, a point in time when you know Elton John was married to a woman and yes. George Michael was straight. And so it was not an environment where I felt comfortable in coming out. Started to doubt whether I was in the right place. My career sort of really stalled as I struggled to sort of stay in the closet, if you will. Did you feel, before you made the decision to transition and to be open about it, did you feel that the situation you were in impacted adversely on your performance at work? Undoubtedly. When you're having to hide something so fundamental about yourself as gender identity, or indeed sexuality, you have to use so much of your mental capacity to kind of protect the secret that that inevitably, A, distracts, but basically takes mental energy away from anything you do, family, work. I got to the point where I could no longer cope with managing the conflict between how I felt and how I appeared. I reached out to my senior HR business partner and basically said, you know, this may come as a bit of a shock to you, but I need to transition my gender, transition my presentation at work, and I need your help to do that. My boss had a conversation with me and he asked me if the uh, flatmate that I'd introduced him to was in fact my partner. But then I thought, well, I could lie because I've been lying quite successfully for two years, but I realised I didn't want to lie. Um, and so I told him the truth. And we had a great conversation. And then at the end of that conversation, I asked if he would respect my confidence because nobody else in the office knew and, you know, it, it didn't affect my work. And, and he told me that I was wrong, that it would affect my work if I wasn't being able to be open and honest with my colleagues, my clients that it would diminish my effectiveness as a leader. And so I very tentatively stepped out of the closet and amazingly enough, the sky didn't fall in. And so I told a few more and, you know, that was really positive. All of this was happening eight years before I came out to my parents. The fear disappeared, the fear of being found out. I think when I was in the closet, you know, the power was all with everybody else, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the potential to find me out and right. then for bad things to happen. With every conversation I had, I felt I was claiming back the power, power with a small p. And you must have spent a great chunk of your energy in hiding that truth. Yes, yeah, trying to, you know, avoid using pronouns and names and being very vague about what you did at the weekend and so on. And not disclosing could also land you in some awkward situations. I've had some really interesting ones. So I worked in an uh, organisation in East London once. It was interesting. There was a, quite a few Asian staff there. And my heritage is uh, my father was Sri Lankan, mother was English. And I was in my 30s, I think, at the time. And there was a woman there. She said, oh, you're not married. And I said, oh, no, because at the time I was still with my partner who I'm with now. But we couldn't get married, of course. But I hadn't come out in this organisation. And she said, oh, I've got some friends I'd like you to meet. I thought it was going for an innocent curry with, you know, a load of Asian colleagues who I work with. Right. I hadn't realised she was lining me up for a date with an Asian woman. 
so before I knew it, I was kind of on a date uh, with what a woman. What of you? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, it was, yes. It was a bit of a will and grace moment, that unwitting prejudice that occurs. So when people talk about, oh, so was it a civil partnership or did you have a normal wedding? You know, those kind of languages, that heteronormative approach, we, we kind it's of ignorance, term about it. isn't it? it but it, not it, necessarily with malicious intent. No. So, but unwitting prejudice, when it's delivered by a number of people, still deliver enough microaggressions to an individual's spirit, confidence, ability in themselves to actually negatively affect how they see themselves and how they see themselves within your company. Unwitting prejudice undermines an inclusive atmosphere. Is this this ladder, isn't it, from you know unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence to conscious incompetence to conscious competence? So it's, it's this kind of you know journey of learning, which L and D can facilitate and can help and say it's okay, right? There's a there's a ladder, there's a route. This is normal. It happens to everybody. We're all biased. You know, let's just all learn. And and you put people on training courses, and it just becomes normalised that okay, we all learn this stuff. Great, happy days. But I think another way is just very practically, in the moment, when it really happens, like in the line manager example. And it's just, as with disability, ask. Just ask. I'm sorry, what would you like? I'm sorry, I don't know. What would you suggest? And just asking is, is actually a really important thing to do. The language thing, it's interesting to hear your thoughts on that, because a lot of the conversations we've had for this podcast, people have been anxious about terminology and the terminology around LGBT can be extremely complex, certainly for people not in those circles, and I think even for people who are. And it seems that the legal framework around it is almost creating more barriers. Because as you say, people are literally anxious now that they're transgressing legally if they mm. say or do the wrong thing. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. So I've you know experienced that myself, where people have said a very innocuous question, like, oh, you know, are you married? And I am now married, but prior to same-sex marriage, I'd say, no, but I, my partner and I had, my, had our civil partnership. And the response was often, oh, I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> Actually, no, what, that's Sorry that thing. I'm in a civil partnership <laughs> or, or sorry that you assumed I was married or, you know, what, do you, what is it that you're sorry about? Mm. Uh, There's a kind of hypervigilance, isn't there? Yes, an oversensitivity Yes, exactly, it. yeah that people were terribly anxious mm. about transgressing and that makes them behave in, in a safe way. And a safe way is often not a reaching out or an inclusive way. Absolutely. What's useful for me with LGBT is we recognise that it's an umbrella term. I think people who use it as a very clear descriptor, that would be wrong. I always say, you know, it's not necessarily whether people say to me, are you LGBT, are you BME? Or I would rather them think, this is Scott, and there are some particular areas we need to consider in employing Scott. And that's all I'm asking for. Scott's point about treating people as individuals is an important one because there's no such thing as the LGBT plus community. Within the LGBT community, there's a lot of biphobia. You know, the lesbians will all stick together, but within the lesbian community, you'll have different factions. A lot of gay and bi people don't get trans. Why should they? Because that's about sexual orientation, whereas trans is about gender identity, it's very different. Within the gay men community, you have a hierarchy. And there's also a hell of a lot of transphobia. And don't even get me on the bisexuals. You know, There are some members of the community who don't think that they should be represented at all. You know, kind of make your mind up. You can't have it both ways. <laughs> <laughs> Acceptance is 
accepting that one size doesn't fit all means not relying solely on disclosure data to understand your employees. The NHS employs 1.3 million people, so statistically that's maybe 100,000 plus LGBT staff. But how many of them feel able to disclose? What we find in terms of sexual orientation is that the disclosure rates are quite low. So there's a high level of do not wish to disclose or unknown. So on that 1.3 million, 0.6% of the workforce declare themselves to be gay. 0.4% of the workforce declare themselves to be lesbian and 0.4% as well declare themselves to be bisexual. So in terms of lesbian, gay and bisexual people, you've got under 1.5% of the workforce reporting, which is really low, isn't it? It is very low. It is very low. And we know it's not accurate. So it's about recognising what these numbers really mean. It's legal in the UK to ask people about their identity if they want to voluntarily disclose. And that gives you a real measure on two counts. One, it gives you a measure of how many people might identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans in an organisation. And we know that if the national average is around about 6%, where an organisation benchmarks versus that, it's usually a lot lower. But secondly, it gives us a measure of inclusion. Because if we thought that there were about 6% LGBT people in the country, and therefore perhaps in our workforce, if not all those people feel able to disclose or want to disclose, it's actually a measure of inclusion more than a measure of diversity. Because can they be out? Can they feel comfortable and trusting that organisation to let you know? And it's important to ask the right questions in the right way. What I've learned over the time is the barrier to those questions is not the people answering them, it's the people asking them. If I start by asking, uh, here's some questions that are really personal, you don't have to answer them if you want, that really sets that structure. But if I say, here's some critical questions that would be really helpful for us as an organisation to prove the services we deliver, if you could help us fill them in, that would be great. It frames the question much more differently and you get much more positive answers. It's tricky ground, isn't it, particularly for straight people asking those questions because they're in their head, they're thinking, no one asked me this question, no one asked me about my sexuality. But I think that's the point. They should be because we assume. So some people will look at me as a six foot five mixed race scouser and they'll make an assumption I'm straight and it happens quite a bit. Maybe not so if they look at my shoes, but, <laughs> but um, it happens quite a bit. There's a lot to take in here, so let's think about the end game. What should a workplace feel like? The day comes when you present in your acquired gender for the first time, which is nerve-wracking. I had a role where I was mobile, so three, three or four days of the week I was different location. So everywhere you go, there's a first time. When you walk in, in, in my case to a branch, and there are cashiers sat behind the desk or personal bankers at the front and they kind of all know you're going and they all want to look which is fine and that's just how it is do you Um, constantly feel you're having to manage people's expectations and preconceptions yeah so my presentation was hugely important to me and still is and you know you make some fashion crime mistakes along the way but if the culture if the culture and the environment is right Whatever people feel, they will treat you with respect. And that's really important in the workplace. So I knew I could go somewhere, and even if I looked appalling, 
people would treat me with respect. And the challenge for me wasn't being at work, it was going to work and leaving work. So sitting on the train, sitting on the tube with people looking at you, that was incredibly stressful. And on more than one occasion lead to be being abused and assaulted. So for me to be able to almost like come to work where I was who I was, no discrimination was hugely important to me. We're getting to the end of this first episode, but before we finish, here's a sobering thought. When we started work on this series, I imagined we should all be aiming at a time when inclusion would be such a norm we wouldn't need policy about it anymore. But Stephen put me right on that. Often people, good people, espouse a nirvana where we don't need to do this stuff because it's just natural and normal. And here's the slightly uncomfortable truth. As human beings, we prefer sameness to difference. And if we don't consciously include, we will unconsciously exclude. So I think, yes, we can get to a situation where it becomes much more commonplace and it's standard HR practice, and we're not there yet. But I think even if we were to attain that nirvana, vigilance is important in order to prevent regression. And I think, you know... we can show in hard data that when you don't consciously lead on this stuff, you do go backwards. In the absence of transparency and challenge and inclusion, we do tend to hide our own image and we do tend to get more homogenous rather than more diverse. Our thanks to Stephen Frost, Hattie Smart, Liz Bingham, Paul Diemer, Amy Stanning and Scott Durayraj. Come back to the podcast page every Tuesday this month for lots more on the how-tos. We planned that I would sit down firstly with my team and then with the larger peer group and basically tell them the story. Okay, before so, you go any further, yeah. I want to ask how you felt before that meeting because it just sounds terrified. Terrified. Absolutely <laughs> terrified. And the how-not-tos. My then boss said to me, um, there must be more of you out there. And I said... <laughs> What, Aries? Women? <laughs> <laughs> what are you referring to? <laughs>